2: Keith Ups.
0: and Genevieve Kosky. In our last episode, we discussed Mark Waters' 2002 teen comedy, Mean Girls, about a high school newcomer upsetting the social balance at an Illinois high school and making things hard for the reigning bully in Queen Bee. In this episode, we look at the same dynamic, but in 1705 England, where a more literal queen, Anne Stewart, is firmly under the thumb of her companion, Sarah, until Sarah's cousin Abigail arrives and starts usurping her place. This is the first film where Greek writer-director Yorgos Lanthimos doesn't share a writing credit on the screenplay, after a long series of fruitful partnerships with other writers. Lanthimos has made his name on unusually textured movies with deeply disturbing and unpredictable premises, including a family who isolate and warp their children in dogtooth, a world where single people are forcibly turned into animals in *The lobster, and a scenario where a vengeful young man seems to be using magical powers to force a terrible decision on a doctor in the killing of a sacred deer. All of these movies have starkly different looks and feels, but The Favourite feels like even more of a departure. It's something like a conventional historical drama, based on the actual relationship between Queen Anne, played by Olivia Colman, Sarah Churchill, played by Rachel Weitz, and Sarah's cousin Abigail Masham, played by Emma Stone. But Lanthimos tells his story with an intense focus on deep, dark spaces, high-contrast female bodies, and fisheye lenses that compress and distort the action. The Favourite is often a visually startling movie, even when it's operating in the usual removed, elevated, formalist space of prestige history films. The combination is unsettling, but it suits the story, where three women joust and tilt against each other for control, emotionally manipulating each other and veering back and forth between kindness and cruelty. It's kind of a high-stakes Mean Girls, says Rachel Weitz, as we noted last week. The question here isn't who will be Queen Anne's bestie and get a new palace, it's who will control the political future of England. But like Mean Girls, it still feels like a personal statement about survival and freedom, about how far some people are willing to go to keep their head above water, and how readily they're willing to stomp other people into the dirt to get there.
2: I apologize for my appearance. I hoped I might be employed here by you as something. A monster for the children to play with, perhaps.
3: It is important to make new friends in court, is it not?
2: You're so beautiful. Stop it. You mock me. If I were a man, I would ravish you. (laughs) You have become close to Abigail. She is a viper. You're jealous. You must send Abigail away. I do not want to. Let's shoot something. (gasps) (gasps) Sometimes it is hard to remember whether you have loaded the pellet or not. I must take control of my circumstance. I'm on my side. Always.
3: Favour is a breeze that shifts direction all the time. Then, in an instant, you're back sleeping with a bunch of scabrous
2: whores. As it turns out, I am capable of much unpleasantness. Did you just look at me? Look at me! How
0: dare you! Close your eyes!
2: I could not just stand by and let you destroy me.
0: all of oh, this, aren't you? <laughs> oh, it is fun to be queen sometimes. If you do not go, I will start kicking you. And I will not stop. My
2: dear friend, how good to see you returned from hell. I'm sure you shall pass through it one
0: day. <clears throat> what do you guys think of The Favourite?
2: I really loved it. It was really fun and mean but also kind of devastating by the end of it like that final scene is (laughs) really something you kind of realize that the whole movie is basically that final scene everything else has just kind of been you know, pretending they could exert some real control over the situation. I, I yeah, I thought it was fantastic. I love the look of it and just sort of the, how animated it was as well. And, and I, was, I was a big fan.
3: I actually watched this movie twice in the span of a week. And part of the reason I did that, I'm just going to come clean here, is the first time I watched it, I was pretty drunk. <laughs> like not puking an urn drunk, but
2: <laughs> but <laughs> are, I, I, are there
3: any vases
0: in this
2: room we should be worried about? But
3: but I, I'd gone to a wine tasting beforehand, and I was not necessarily following uh, the plot as closely as I should have been, but in that state, I was enamored of this movie just on look and sound alone like I was loving the experience of taking it in on a sensory level and then when I went back and watched it in, <laughs> sober a few nights ago to prepare for this podcast and be able to speak about what I saw like it compounded that that love even more like I just I love the story I love these performances I'm, I'm hard pressed to to pick a favorite among the, th- the three principal women here and I also really love Nicholas Holt as, as Robert Harley who is just just a, a great little thing happening around the edges but uh, yeah I really love this movie and I'm not I've seen Dogtooth and the lobster but I haven't seen killing of a sacred deer but this is like not at all all what i was expecting from my experience with with lanthimos up to now
2: long time listeners will know this is when we slowly morph into an addiction to recovery podcast so
3: (laughs) (laughs) you guys it's the holidays there's a lot of social drinking happening and there's also a lot of cramming movie watching into before the end of the Uh, year sometimes these things overlap
1: (laughs) i had a good time with the movie as well and it it does feel like it squares nicely with Lanthimos' previous work which it could be quite Distancing and cold and and difficult, um, with something that's a little more approachable, but still very much his terrain. Just on a superficial level, the film is a uh, tremendous fun to watch. Uh, to watch these, so much these
3: candlelight. The, like, I love the way candlelight yeah, is used. The, the, the fish
1: eye yeah, and the fisheye lenses and like uh, the very striking use of music. I mean that that
3: plinking uh, piano, the yeah. sustained mm-hmm. note thing, which yeah.
1: is a. I mean that's a huge formal risk that really. Is mesmerizing and pays off for him. So, uh, um, mesmerizing
3: no, a- is a good word. That was definitely my first time doing yeah. experience. It's fun. <laughs> it's really,
1: it's really funny. And it's got the line that stands out for me is I have it here is when uh, things are approaching the, the end game. And, uh, Sarah's a lot wiser about what has happened and what's going to happen. And, uh, <laughs> but, uh, Apple get, you know, gets off the line. Um, all I know is your carriage awaits and my mate is on her way up here with something called a pineapple. <laughs> 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 I love, like, that is just, such a beautiful, crisp line. And then, and of course, and all the scenes where they're skeet shooting are <laughs> just <laughs> amazing. Mm-hmm. It's a fun movie it's very dark and disturbing and tragic in some respects but uh i had a good time with it
2: i haven't seen alps yet but i i feel like this is the first Lanthimos movie that really kind of brings his sensibility into something that's recognizably a world that might actually exist i mean nothing nothing really mm-hmm. says i guess nothing in dogtooth could not conceivably no, exist in some sort it, of right. tw- no, twisted world yeah. but 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 i mean uh yeah I, the the rules of reality are, are rewritten for his other films in a way that they're not in this but it's still totally his sensibility
1: I mean, they're literally rewritten in Dogtooth. I mean, that's the whole point of it is these parents who have constructed this entire mm-hmm. repressive, closed I- environment and, and invented, reinvented the language, in, in fact, to kind of keep keep uh, their children in line.
0: I mean, I suppose Lanthimos is, all of the Lanthimos films that I've seen are about the rewriting of the rules of reality within uh, these tiny little hermetic, suffocating environments. Here, it's just less fanciful less speculative and more historical but this film still just feels so different to me like I have been fascinated with his films because they're so unpredictable you don't know where they're going to go in this case I feel like you do know where it's going to go and it's just still every moment of it is so riveting I come back to Peter Greenaway because I love Greenaway's films But they're so fraught. They're so dangerous for the people in them. And everything here seems just similarly, like Nicholas Holt has that line about today you're here and tomorrow you're back sleeping with a pile of scabrous whores. Like everybody is just on the edge. Boo, you scabrous whore. (laughs) Slut. (laughs) Everybody's just on the edge of of traumatic failure at all times, including the queen who doesn't really have to worry about somebody hand-waving her back to the scullery where she has to dip her hands in lye until they <laughs> melt. But she's so unhappy and so unconsolable. One of the things that fascinates me most about this movie is just watching her, how melancholy she gets around music mm-hmm. and just how dangerous that is for everyone around her. Like everybody has to fall over themselves, acceding to her moods. And that's part of what's like spoiling her life. It's... It's such a painful and dangerous film emotionally. And I just, I think that the cast brings it off so wonderfully, and Lanthimos just creates that, that horrific tone so wonderfully.
1: And I think it deals with power dynamics in an interesting way, too, in the sense, like, I, I'm not sure, I can't remember where I read this observation, but it was a good one about the Olivia Coleman character. She's the only one who could have just an just a honest response to something, because she's she's the one kind of a, who is at the top of the uh, of the chain. And so she has these, a lot of authentic, reactions to things where everyone else is kind of having to position themselves around that and react to it and try to find their way into uh positions of power below her so uh
0: you know you say that but there are so many things that she does in the film for effect, like standing in the window threatening to jump out or like lying on the floor wailing she's expressing real emotions in those moments but she's also like expressing them in a very artificial way in an attempt to force specific reactions that she's often not getting. Well, and it's also just part of
3: like who she is and the position she she's in. I mean, there's a reason pop culture is strewn with these like larger than life damaged royal characters because being especially in this paradigm of royalty, like that you know you're a god more or less, you, you know, and it's and she is someone who has so much trauma personal trauma in her background combined with this incredibly weird cloistered life even though her actions and reactions are authentic to who she is as a person who she is as a person is so unrecognizable to anyone else that they become heightened and, and strange as a result
0: and one of the things that interests me about this movie is that it's a historical drama about a very fraught period in time for England there was a lot of very complicated stuff going on with the with this succession you know there's a reason why she's so traumatized by the fact that she can't produce an heir there's a reason why there's the the struggle with France and like all of these nobles scheming for power and the film is completely uninterested in any of that it's uh, you know we don't we don't even get like the little title card that's like the year is 1705 and like here's the here's what's going on with various families and here's what the stakes are we're just kind of launched into the middle of this very personal drama. And we get a bunch of historically relevant stuff about, you know, whether we should push forward against France or sue for peace. But it's really only important to the film in the context of what it does with these three women's push and pull against each other.
1: That's a great point. and And I think it's so effective in the film to simplify those issues as much as possible and crystallize them of, of saying, well, we have one position is saying, you know, that we must continue this war and continue to tax landowners and potentially cause some unrest at home doing so, or we got to find a way to, to end it. And those are the two positions. And here are the sides. That's how it divides up. And we're just going to move forward. And the film doesn't get to bogged down in details beyond that it really uh, simplifies that that history because I don't think it's really all that as you say all that interested in it I mean it's much more interested in human behavior
3: yeah well and that's I think kind of a reflection of its setting in court because like everyone there is incredibly re- even though they're talking about what is happening they're incredibly removed from it like this movie is just concerned with The people that are in the court and the war is an abstraction to all of them so therefore it's an abstraction to the movie
1: it's so true to people in positions of that kind of power to be uh removed from from the consequential decisions they they Mm -hmm. make i mean i I, you think about now about how horrified people are when protesters follow them into restaurants or or Mm -hmm. chant outside their homes well i mean like that is a the rare case in which the truly elite are are having to confront the real world blowback and consequences of the decisions that they've made. And that doesn't really happen.
2: Yeah, it's all Eye of the Hurricane. You know, they, they have their own, you know, games they play within that. that, But the, like you said, they are removed from what's actually happening.
0: Well, where do you, like, I, I kind of made the point about uh, hermetic settings and and warped rules. But where else do you see this as fitting into Lanthimos' filmography? Like, what, what is he getting at here that's interesting to him?
2: I think his willingness to depict cruelty and seeing cruelty as sort of intrinsic to how, to how humans interact with one another is is uh, of great interest of him and something that he this material allows him to to play with quite a bit. The places in which that still finds itself into this this rarefied environment of the most elite of the most elite at, at this period in history.
1: Yeah, I think that's all all true. I mean, it's, it's power, cruelty, a lot of just uh, psychological mind games. I mean, I think his. Lanthimos's view of human nature is a very sour one <laughs> to some extent. I mean though I think you would you could look at a film like The Lobster and you can look at look at a film like The Favourite and see other more identifiable human impulses of, of real desire and, and need and things that we sympathize with more. You know that, that It's not entirely a, just about people being cruel to each other.
3: Well, and sadness. Like, the Anne character is so... Like, I mean, she's cruel in her way, but, I mean, it's, her sadness is so foregrounded as, like, what's at the heart of that, you know? And that's incredibly human.
1: I don't know if the film really would have any kind of depth without that element there. You know, if it were just about the machinations between yeah,
3: the, Abigail and Sarah seem like the, the characters that you right. uh, would expect in a, a Lanthimos film. I think the Queen Anne character is a bit more of a complicating factor.
1: For sure.
0: So there's a sort of an odd thing in this film where the sexual favors that various people bestow on the queen actually seem like the closest Lanthimos has gotten in any film of his that I've seen to a healthy sexual relationship. And they're still
3: pretty
1: a quote unquote. It's, hell wow. uh, it's still pretty bad. Bar is low, but
0: the, the, the bar the bar is I'm underground. You, I, I'm glad you
3: brought this up because I was kind of thinking of, but I felt I didn't have a, enough of a grounding in, in his filmography to say that for sure. So I'm glad. Well, to, to, I mean, the, like verified. looking
0: at the ones that I've seen, like Dogtooth has essentially forced incest between siblings who are forcibly married to each other by their their parents. The Lobster has like state sponsored molestation of incarcerated people by the staff killing of a secret deer has that incredibly disturbing sex scene with Nicole Kidman where she plays dead for her husband in order to entice him and then <laughs> here we have the honeymoon night uh which is yeah. just <laughs> the world's most awkward and unpleasant hand job like the idea of not entirely uh, consensual or questionably consensual like perverse sex acts is seemingly fascinating to him and the, the almost consensuality of, like, the the connection between Queen Anne and, and Abigail seems almost healthy by comparison. It's only transactional as opposed to being, like, outright rape. And, like, Abigail's attitude towards rape, where she's like, oh, you've come to rape me, okay. And she, and she goes limp. Mm-hmm. Like, that's performative uh, for the man that she's decided will be her husband. It doesn't necessarily feel real so much as it's one of her many ways of baiting him. But... Just the idea of forced and really unpleasant sex being a continuum in Lanthimos' films, I think, is just carried out here.
3: That said, it, I mean, and this is, I guess, more foreplay than sex. But the the scene of them wrestling slash like beating each other up in the in the woods as a sort of uh, sexual foreplay is one of my favorite scenes of the film, and is, I, I guess, maybe a very Lanthimosian
0: moment. <laughs> what's 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 the adjective
3: oh, here, no guys? Boy. I think he just
2: coined it, but I think it works.
0: It works fine for me. Yeah, that scene. I like. I. I don't quite know what to make of it. It's very. It's funny. It's very telling. It's funny. Come on. No. You, you laughed at that,
3: right? I did I'm, laugh I'm at it. like a weirdo who thought that was funny, right? <sighs> uh, uh, <laughs> I did laugh at it. I
0: didn't laugh a ton at it because I, as so often with Lanthimos, uh, like, I don't know where it's going. Yeah. I, he reminds me a lot of Michael Haneke in some ways in that both in the disturbing tone of his films and in that you don't know what's going to happen next and you can't ever quite relax. And with another director, I might have taken that as... This is just her showing her power dynamics or this is a relatively playful way of dealing with the tension between them. In his case, I was like, is this going to become a rape scene at any moment or is one of them going to hit their head on a rock and die? Like, who knows where this is going?
1: <laughs> but there's at least some evident pleasure in the film, which is new. Some solid some you know erotic gout massage (laughs)
0: that is true Uh, leaving leaving aside the the sexual pleasure like there are moments of of actual joy and comfort mm -hmm. and fun in this movie which doesn't feel very lanthimosian based on what we've seen so far excuse me it's lanthimosian
2: (laughs) can i I, I say something here i I don't want gout gout looks bad i'm gonna try to avoid getting gout if, if at all possible
1: well, there's some forest herbs out there for you, Keith. Okay.
0: <laughs> All you have to do is mash them up and smear them into your separating flesh and you'll be fine. What's the big deal? <laughs> yeah, this doesn't look like a, a happy world to live in. And in part, that's just because of the, the ever-present threat, like the, the giant abyss of what lies below you. If you fall out of favor with the queen, it feels like a desperate and fraught place to live in. You know,
3: talking about this, it's making me uh, appreciate the thing with Anne and the cake and how she, she always wants to be eating cake even though it makes her sick and uh, like just cake is a symbol of pleasure and but it, how it always has this horrible, viscerally disgusting effect on her. It's, it's positively ocean. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm going to stop. But <laughs> oh my God. Can, can we talk about that final shot? What the hell is yeah. up with
1: that final shot? I, I thought I had a take on it. I,
2: oh, I, I, I,
3: I, I got a take too. All right, but, go for it. But no, I've, I've already talked a lot.
2: Well, the final sequence is Emma Stone kind of not very playfully stepping on a rabbit and and like exerting her control over it and seemingly, you know, having gotten everything she wanted, but then being forced to somehow tend to the queen with the sort of the superimposition of the rabbits around. i mean i think it's kind of obvious that, that that you know she's you know whatever control she thinks she has isn't an illusion that 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 she is there it's somebody else's pleasure she's no, really not that different from the rabbits uh that that she was uh you know kind of lording her uh her will over and it reminded me if anything it kind of reminded me of the final team between Joaquin Phoenix and Philip Seymour Hoffman and and the Master, where where there's sort of this sense that 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 there is no leading and masterless existence that everyone's in service to someone or another, and and uh, even more nightmarishly portrayed.
0: I was actually super curious whether that ending had echoes in other like specific echoes in other cinema for people because it felt so familiar to me in that feeling of. I've made my bed. I've spent the entire movie making this bed and now the final scene is just sort of like leaving me with a moment of realizing what the future looks like. And I brought it up with my husband and he he brought up the final shot of the graduate and that just sort of feeling of mm. I've I've come this far and now the future's stretching ahead of me and I'm I'm looking at it for the first time and realizing what it might look like. So I can I can get that tonally It's just the fade to the field of rabbits that kind of throws me. Okay, so
3: my interpretation is like pretty much in line with Keith's, but specifically I think the rabbits are doing some pretty heavy symbolic lifting. The rabbits obviously represent all the children she lost, but as an extension of that, I think within the movie, the rabbits also represent Anne's trauma and resultant... Madness, I don't know if that's mm. quite the right word for it. E- Eccentricities, basically like all the things that make her difficult, you know? And you know, when Abigail first endears herself to Anne, it's through the rabbits and it's by sort of coddling them and therefore coddling this part of her nature. And Sarah, you know, we're introduced to her as having no time for the rabbits. She's very blunt. She's not interested in engaging with them, the same way she's not willing to engage with some of Anne's more hysterical moments. So in that final shot of the rabbits just kind of like overtaking Sarah visually, I think it's sort of like meant as a realization of like this element of Anne is like she's going to drown in it. Basically, you know, it's going to take over her life. So that's that's my take on on the rabbits.
0: I like that a lot. Mm hmm.
1: Yeah, me too. And I, 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 like too that that moment or uh, where the film lands is set up by Abigail's just terrible miscalculation with this idea that Sarah had cooked the books, and mm-hmm. and, uh, and that recognition by by Anne and then by Abigail that that she would never do that, and that you know, that great moment afterwards where she's just like what fuck 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 fuck, yeah. and she's walking away because she knows that that play backfired terribly and now now and understands the real abigail in a way and, and can, can and that sets up this torment that she's left with at the end
0: well there's a lot more to discuss about this film and it's terrible terrible torments but for now we're going to have a long slow fade out to bunnies and then we'll be right back to talk about the connections between mean girls and the favorite <laughs>
2: I'm ready for the Russian ambassador. Who did your makeup? We went for something dramatic. Do you like it? You look like a badger. Oh. Are you going to cry? Really? Well, what do you think you look like? Badger. Do you really think you can meet the Russian delegation looking like that? No. I will manage it about your rooms. Thank you. Did you just look at me? Did you? Look at me! Look at me! How dare you! Close your eyes!
0: Now it's time for Connections, when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common uh girl world plays a big part in mean girls vision of itself and we want to talk about that but before we get there i think we should talk about guy world (laughs) i've been kind of avoiding bringing up the men in these two movies because i I really wanted to get into it in connections but both of these movies put the men uh, apart from nicholas holt who does have a bit of a drive uh in in the favorite although we'll get to him in a second. For the most part, the men in these movies are treated like women are treated in some of the most dismissive and and male centric movies of like the 1980s. Like, they're basically around as prizes. Uh, they're kind of abstract. They don't have much personality. They're just there to like look attractive and interfere with uh, the female character's happiness. Like, what do you guys think of the guys in these movies? Well, they're also
2: the the one guy is there to be be uh, pelted with stuff while nude. So there's, <laughs> so there's that as well.
0: Yeah, I mean,
3: in Mean Girls, I love how I love what a nothing Aaron Samuels says. It's, it's, it's exactly what you're talking about. Like he's I you're
1: talking about his hair and the way his hair looks yeah. better when it's back or when it's forward, and it's like he's just he's just an object. I just yeah. it, it bothers me so much when yeah. movies do that.
3: Well, yeah, and and like there's not a whole lot of like reason given for Katie falling for him, which I don't really think there needs to be. Like high school crushes aren't particularly he's, rooted in um a, so
0: dreamy, except yeah, pretty. yeah,
3: they, they aren't rooted in a whole lot besides dreaminess, obviously, but like he becomes an object of... Uh, competition because he's the thing that they both want and and like as I was thinking about this pairing and like seeing any character parallels, it's like oh Aaron Samuels is Queen Anne, <laughs> you know he's the Queen Anne of of this scenario, but just uh, a lot less interesting and and more bland obviously as a character. But
0: he is there, and this is something that that we also have seen girls do in films and Time immemorial. He is there to confer a certain approval that shows you when the protagonist has turned the corner. He's kind of there as a mor- moral arbiter like he's not just conferring himself upon her to show that she's changed her ways. He's conferring moral approval from on high like you've really turned yourself around. You're you're you are good enough to deserve me now, which I, it just I cannot help but be aware that Tina Fey has written a lot about like sexism and roles in Hollywood and I believe that this is 1000% meant that she was like looking at at teen movies like saying something like the sure thing comes to mind and just thinking like how can I emulate all of this but make it a dude
1: flip it around
2: flip the script yeah he's a little too I don't know he's a little too perfect though that guy I mean it would be one thing if he was just an object but he also seems to be smart about stuff no he's bad at
3: math he's bad at at math but he also
2: seems to be like kind of be more evolved in his thinking than any other character in the movie and I find that a little um, too easy
0: you know when we were talking about uh, Mean Girls being preachy, we didn't even touch on the whole. Hi, I'm a girl. I'm bad at math. Oh my god, he's so bad at math. I'm I'm totally bad at math, and I need your help. Like that whole thing and how it ends in a lecture about like you don't need to dumb yourself down for men and girls, yeah, no. which could practically be delivered to the camera.
1: Yeah, <laughs> but um, continue to do well at math if you're good at it is the message.
0: With the favorite part of what I end up wondering about more than anything is Lord Marlborough. Like he's. Mm. Sarah kind of sends him off to war and makes a big deal about how like willing she is to sacrifice himself for the country. And I never really did feel like I had a handle on whether she really was a patriot or it was all selfishness or she was trying to get turn him into a hero or she was actually trying to get him killed off. I don't know who he is or what their relationship really is.
3: Yeah, I I kind of have a similar sense of confusion. Though I I think after my second viewing, I came down on the side of like they are actually working as a team. Like I, I think like how we see them at the end, there's like a kiss between them that feels very sort of marital and authentic, like without any sort of insinuation of a something dark happening there. And, and just like the way they end when the guys in horseback are riding up and she's saying like I think it might be time for us to leave England for a while like a I think that sort of undercuts the idea that that she is like this staunch patriot you you know the fact she's like we better we better cut and run and b, the fact that she is like saying that to her husband and it kind of feels like an admission like oh this plan of ours isn't working out, it's time for us to beat it. So that made me think of them as sort of more of a team. But because the movie is so focused on the triad of these, these three women, that is not necessary to be confirmed or not. Because what, what the movie is concerned with is what Sarah does, not what she has discussed with her husband about it.
0: Harley also strikes me as potentially having a role that would normally be a woman in a in a gender flipped version of this story. He's very Bitchy. Mm-hmm. I mean, his his affect, his way of, of dealing with things like he's threatening and manipulative, but he's mostly just like catty and snipey. A fop he's a fop he is a fop yeah. but in the you know he's a fop who pushes people into ditches when they don't immediately sure. <laughs> he, he seems like a very poor manipulator to me like i mean cooperate he with to... me and then i'm going to push you into a ditch it's just, it's it, <laughs> you you catch more more flies with honey than with pushing them into ditches in the middle of the night
3: i mean character analogs is maybe the least interesting way to do this comparison but i mean i can't help but think of damien
0: in in, mm-hmm. in mean
3: girls you know and the, damien does not have the social power that harley has but i think the way in which they both engage with our protagonists, I guess, are somewhat reminiscent of each other.
0: Yeah, Damian is a really good example. I feel like if this, if Mean Girls was being made today, he would have his own arc and it would end with him like dancing with a guy at, yeah. at prom and possibly getting a kiss. He's really a two thousand and four level gay best friend who uh, is is gay enough to occasionally look off screen and say that somebody's attractive, but not gay enough to ever touch another boy mm-hmm. or much less be in any kind of relationship. Uh, you know, because we just can't have that on screen. Like he exists as an adjunct and a, a tool like a story tool to do things like cooking the books on the election for instance oh, yeah. or or lending that's out true. clothing that's
3: true he is he is the head of the the planning committee or whatever for the dance so uh, i forget what i said about him not having the social power that that harley does he has probably exactly the same amount he's <laughs> head of the the minority party at, at the high school
0: <laughs> know, these movies really are parallel he's he a, he a
1: pretty great power move though in court where he he, oh, yeah. he assigns a position to the queen that she does not have uh, it says it talks talks about how she wants to end the war and these these taxes and it, she ends up what f- fainting after that right yeah faking well,
0: fainting i think
1: Nevertheless, um,
3: well, and she ends up naming, basically putting him in power at the end. And she, she kicks Marlboro out. Harley is, is I think the, the winner in this scenario. He's the only one who gets everything he wants.
1: Yeah. That's true. That's yeah. what happens. That's what happens in uh, in guy world. You get what you want. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> so Ultimately, maybe- you get what you want, even when you're not the that major character in the world. You still get what you <laughs> yeah. want.
0: Nuts and gum for everybody. Well, speaking of uh, speaking of how girl world is different. I oh, mean, there's so many different things we could talk about mm-hmm. in girl world, just in terms of how both of these movies handle like social scheming and and gossiping and. Two-facedness, in particular, what are you? What do you all think about the whole girl world phenomenon?
2: Oh, uh, I, I think both films are really good at depicting the world of girls, for want of a better term, world of, of females, uh, as as kind of an inflated world with its own rules and. I think what makes it interesting to compare the two is the rules aren't that different. It's it's all about manipulation and insinuation in both Mean Girls and the Favorite. And it's all also about um agendas that are just beneath the surface that the rules of girl world prevent you from being overt and saying what you want most of the time but it's sometimes quite obvious
3: yeah it's interesting to me how within girl world in both of these films like relationships begin under the auspices of friendship you know like abigail and sarah start i mean they're cousins you know and like they start out as allies or, or, or abigail sort of works to ingratiate herself With Sarah before she tries to usurp her, in the same way that Katie's not actively trying to make friends with Regina George, but their relationship starts out friendly in the same way. But then as it progresses, it gets increasingly aggressive to the point where in the favorite you know they're shooting blanks at each other or shooting birds uh-huh. in front of each other <laughs> you, you know and in Mean Girls it, it culminates in an all-out physical brawl am- among women you know so that's there's definitely this, this sort of like progression of antagonistic female relationships where they start out like mimicking a friendship and that slowly falls away as they keep poking at each other over time
0: mean girls has that whole running uh gag motif i guess motif where katie grew up in africa uh, because her her parents were researchers Mm -hmm. and she keeps comparing things that she sees her peers do to the animal kingdom we keep devolving into these like short fantasy sequences where everybody is actually behaving like chimpanzees and and lions at the watering hole and i kind of feel like that's the equivalent to the fisheye moments that keep popping up in the favorite there's just this weird distortion lens that gets put on everything to make it a little more surreal the fisheye lens I'm not sure it seems as as pointed and specific to me but then again in Mean Girls like the animal sequences feel a little overplayed Mm -hmm. and, and on the nose to me so I don't know
1: it definitely overplayed it on the nose. One thing I'm thinking about, too, is is how the girl world is, is navigated by the two characters who have the most in common in these films, Katie and Mean Girls, and by Abigail in The Favorite, in the sense that they both are newcomers to this environment. They're working their way up the ladder, but I'm curious about what you think about their motives in terms of what they're trying to do. I mean, in a sense, they're both trying to survive. They're both entering in positions of no power at all. I mean, Abigail, has has her family has been, been shamed. She has to start at the bottom um, for, for Katie. She's coming into this this new uh, school and, and has to figure out how to make her way through that place. And then things change as they in both films in terms of like what their goals are and what what they're trying to get out of that world. I mean I think Katie's journey is really toward trying to become her true self and a decent person and being you know who she's supposed to be uh, in a world that really has warped her entire way of thinking whereas Abigail is just about the achievement and accumulation of of power and of being as close to power as possible. And so our view of these characters, their sympathies really change. I mean, like I think we're, we're on board with Katie from the beginning, but there's a certain point where we start to say, Abigail, for, for who she is, and uh, sympathies kind of fall away, right?
2: I have a question. I, I know Katie does not come into this situation trying to ascend to power. That comes later. Does Abigail? Does, I was, I was yeah, about to ask the exact yeah, same question. Yeah, exactly. And I, I don't know. I don't think we we're given that information. I
3: mean, I came away with the impression that she came to the palace with a plan you know like she was calculating like maybe not knowing the specifics of that plan like knowing how she would end up manipulating sarah and the queen but you know i mean she says a couple times in the film like something along the lines of like all i want is to be a lady again yeah you know like her father a lost station her, to yeah, be yeah 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 and why would she go to a palace if not to regain that station in life what reason is there for her to go there if not that you know I guess you could argue plain survival, but I don't know. I just think the way that character is sort of like unfurled throughout the movie, I definitely get the impression that she came into it
0: with a plan in
3: a way that Katie absolutely did not.
0: At the same time, I think both of them have their situations exacerbated just by the situations around them. I I feel like from what little we see about Abigail before she starts cozening up to the queen, it feels like she might have been content, eh, maybe not content, but she might have stayed in that position if it didn't come with her hands being burned because people in in the kitchen don't have any fellow feeling for her and don't warn her about the lie. If it didn't come with humiliation and uncertainty and being beaten I, it just there are so many aspects of it that she seems to not have known would be there yeah. and in the same sort of way katie seems reasonably content with her friends until she's pushed into this high stakes power grab uh where you know two people are trying to use her one against the other and one against the rest of the school both of them i feel have their hands forced
2: yeah, I don't know. I don't know though. I don't. I don't know if Abigail would have been happy. It's certainly better than being, you know, lost in a poker game. But I don't know if she would have been happy as if it weren't for the lie and the backbiting in, in, in among the uh, the servants.
0: Well, I mean, I'm not convinced that she's happy at the end of the movie. And I don't just mean mm, because no. she's being forced to massage the queen's whatever. I mean that moment where she's reading a book in the queen's company and she steps on the rabbit. Mm-hmm. Like that speaks to like she's. She's married, she's a lady, she's rich, she's in the Queen's employ, and she's still looking for something to torment. Mm -hmm. I I don't think that she's in that moment raising her ambitions any higher, but I don't think she's fundamentally happy or she wouldn't have that need to hurt something. But I think that moment also
3: speaks to a certain rottenness inside of her that also suggests she is capable of coming into this with this sort of
0: Plan and intent.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. There's uh, kind of she's a mean girl, you might say.
0: Yeah. She is a mean girl. That's well, actually she's... a good way of putting it. Well, let's actually that makes a great transition into an, a next topic, which is uh, bullying. One of the things that fascinates me most about the favorite is the degree to which Sarah bullies the Queen, because it's it's so obvious that she has so much control over Queen Anne and. That just by treating her kindly, she could maintain all of her power, but she's cruel. She's unnecessarily cruel, and she's like blatantly and obviously cruel. And I assume that's because she's just gotten impatient with feeling like she has to be at her beck and call, but it goes so far as to be stupid. I mean, she makes some moves that are just, like, on an intrigue level, you know, uh, grabbing her and physically assaulting her and threatening her in places that she doesn't have to, like, where all she would have needed needed to do was show up and play whist. And I'm not entirely sure what her game is in those
2: moments. I don't think she's ever been threatened before. I don't think she's ever had, you know, a sense that she could have a rival or this arrangement could ever end. And I think there's a certain amount of leverage she has over the queen because she could always leak the information about their relationship and uh, and that's kind of, kind of like the ace of her sleeve or whatever
0: sure but i don't really see any difference between her pushing anne against a wall and calling her names and saying you will call the vote as i order you to call the vote and abigail stepping on the bunny mm. like it's just it's just her being rotten it's just her being cruel for the sake of cruelty
1: but she's, uh, but I think there's a much more of a moral center with her than with Abigail. Really, what uh, do so you see, with that? Sarah? Yeah, I mean, I think she's principled. I don't think she she has a, like a, uh, I mean, maybe it's just the, the long history that she has w- w- with the Queen that allows her to have a little more candor and be a little bit more herself. I don't know. I, I you think she's just rotten to the core, is what? Is I don't your, think she's
0: rotten to the core, but I think there's something fundamentally off with her. But she's
1: honest, though. Yeah. That's what the film turns on at the end is that the queen knows that she's honest, and, and so a- Abigail's attempt to, to persuade her otherwise falls short. And you and you get those moments throughout the film, you know, where where she looks at her, tells her she looks like a raccoon in the makeup, and a badger, a badger. Excuse me, <laughs> you look like uh, a badger. Look like a badger, and um, and so I think there's a fundamental there's an honesty to Sarah that does not exist exist totally foreign to Abigail yeah, that one I,
0: I, I that one I just don't buy I mean to me I'm the only one who's being willing to be honest with you is up there with I'm just being real uh on reality shows like mm. I you know it's just I'm just being myself I'm just being real and by that I mean I'm saying horrible things about other people but she's challenging the, but yeah. she's
1: challenging the queen
3: I'm, sure I'm, I'm but kind that
0: of... scene where she calls her a badger is just she did look like a badger. Like
3: I'm, I, I'm, I'm kind of on Scott's side here because, like, maybe this is naive, but like, a I do think there is like some real history and affection between those characters. The little runner where they have like these Mister, or they call Mr. each other Mister Morley, Mister Morley, yeah, <laughs> like that whole thing, and, yeah. and and like there's definitely the sense that they have a long personal history together that is a deeper bond than Anne has with anyone else. And because of that, Sarah knows she can be forthright bordering on cruel with her in a way that Anne maybe needs because Anne is a difficult, childish person. Like she is not interested in running the country. She is interested in eating cake and playing whist and going fast in her chair, you know, like she is presented (laughs) as a, a sort of, Childish monarch and Sarah is the one who is Trying to run the country and I think What, what you're characterizing as bullying I think of a little more is Like maternal forcefulness mm-hmm. You know in this relationship I don't know if that's what you were no, getting yeah, at Scott yeah, but that, sure. I I got that a lot more than anything that I would characterize as bullying there I, I, I feel a lot more bullying happening in with the, the Abigail and Sarah characters like when Abigail poisons her yeah. <laughs> that, that goes beyond bullying a, yeah, a fair right. bit I think. Yeah. I mean it's just like the calteen bars in, in Mean Girls
0: <laughs> except instead of 20 pounds overweight you end up with your face slashed up in a whorehouse yep. where they're threatening to turn you out yep. Um, gosh, there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack there. There are kind of ways to tell somebody that they look like a badger, like that makeup maybe isn't working for you. I think we should do something else with it. Not you know, go and wash your face.
3: But everyone talks to the queen like that. Abigail might be the person who'd be like, maybe we try this. But Sarah is like there. I think it's just a way of showing that their relationship is on a different level. And you can have a relationship with someone that allows you to talk to them in that forthright manner. I just
0: I don't think of that as a relationship. I I don't I certainly don't think of it as a friendship. Well, you know what I'm going to say to that? you
3: whore
0: (laughs) god and now I'm going to use my incredible social power to get the last word by winding this up right here and now Mean Girls is available on DVD and Blu-ray and can be digitally rented on all the usual platforms the favorite is in theaters right now we'll be right back with your next picture show Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Keith what in the film world has been good for you lately? Uh,
2: well, by the time this episode is made available, I will have uh, published in Vulture a, a list I've been working on for, worked on for a while of the greatest Christmas films of all time. I, I, I did 40 of them. So it means it's been a part of November watching a lot of Christmas movies, uh, some of which I had not seen before. So Christmas is kind of over for me, guys. I've, like, <laughs> kind, of, I've uh-huh. kind of done it already. I've, there's a couple that leaked out of me as, as real uh, real gems that, that weren't really on my radar before. But I'll will stick with one of them. It's called. It happened on Fifth Avenue. It's sort of an interesting story behind it. But it, unless you unless you um, you know follow a lot of old movies, none of these things are going to really leap out to you as huge stars. But it's directed by Roy Del Ruth, and it stars Victor Moore as a, a hobo who every. Winter uh, moves into an, uh, a mansion on Fifth Avenue owned by the second richest man in the world, played by, by Charles Ruggles. And farcical elements enter into it when the, the millionaire's daughter uh, moves into the mansion, uh, which is then increasingly taken up, uh, under, under a false name, It's taken up by other like homeless people. And eventually, the millionaire himself moves back in under the pretense of being a homeless person. Uh, it's very fun. Uh, there's a real strain of kind of uh, dissatisfaction, at least in 1947, kind of the strain of dissatisfaction of, of World War II vets, like not necessarily finding a place in, in the world uh, that they were returning to as well. It's it's very light, but it's got some uh, some real uh, strong social elements to it as well, and it's delightful through and through. The interesting side story to it, it, it's it's a movie that Frank Capra could have directed, but chose to direct It's a Wonderful Life instead, <laughs> and in some ways it's kind of had an opposite history of It's a Wonderful Life, where from 1990 until fairly recently, it was just not shown on television. It was nowhere to be found. So it's kind of resurfaced as sort of a, a hidden gem over the last couple of years. And, I, you know, if TCM hasn't shown it already, I'm sure they'll show it or show it again. Uh, this Christmas season, it's, it's available through di- various digital platforms. And I'd really recommend th- uh, seeking it out. It's, it's a lot of fun. That's It happened on Fifth Avenue, so uh, give it a look. Uh, Tasha, how about you?
0: Well, Christmas isn't quite over for me yet. Or maybe it was over for me last year when I saw this film at Fantastic. <laughs> Fest. I'm betting that this didn't make your your list of greatest Christmas films of all time. But Anna and the Apocalypse is out in theaters right now.
2: I haven't seen it yet. I was considering like up to like you know the most recent year. So you know maybe. Maybe I, next year.
0: I'm going to recommend it. It's uh it's a zombie Christmas. It's a Scottish Christmas zombie musical. Uh, it was. It was shot. That's a in, lot of adjectives. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's so many adjectives, but they like they they all fully play out. People who have seen Shaun of the Dead might find uh, some of these bits a little familiar, particularly the musical sequence where the lead character Anna, uh, played by Ella Hunt goes walking through her small Scottish village and doesn't notice that everybody around her is turned into zombies. Mm-hmm. However, uh, there's a, a minor twist on that sequence from Shaun of the Dead. She doesn't notice cause she has her headphones on and she's belting out a musical number. And, There's an almost baby driver like choreography to the way she like works her way through this town, as does one of her classmates uh, in this just sort of soaring musical number where they're telling the story of their emotions and not noticing what's going on around them. And what's going on around them is the zombie apocalypse. I understand being thoroughly sick of zombie movies at this point, but I still have a, a kind of a soft spot for zombie comedy and I have a real soft spot for any Christmas movie that's not too precious about the holiday. This is almost a Christmas movie in the sense that Gremlins is a Christmas movie. It's it's not quite that far removed, uh, but it is. It's off color. It's tremendously violent in a zombie comedy kind of way. Uh, the zombie deaths are extremely over the top. These particular zombies are hilariously fragile. They can be taken out by a spatula. (laughs) And there's a lot of gore in this movie. But fundamentally, it's kind of a a coming-of-age story about young people on the verge of graduation trying to figure out what their lives are going to be like and then having those big philosophical questions interrupted by the undead. I already know that uh, Scott is not hugely enamored of this movie. It definitely has its flaws. It, it definitely feels minor in some ways. Uh, and as with so many comedy musicals in particular, it kind of loses speed as it heads into that third act and tries to find like meaning in all of it. Mm-hmm. But there are some really great numbers. Like I really enjoy the rock music. I enjoy the way the music is integral to the story. Like the songs actually express things that you want to know and advance the plot as opposed to just sort of being interruptions in the story. And there is a sequence where actor Paul Kay, who was Thoros of Mir in Game of Thrones, uh, kind of evolves from petty school administrator tyrant to full-on villain in just this this hugely expansive villain number that reminds me of some of the like the better Disney villain numbers. Uh, He just throws himself around like singing about like how he's embracing nihilism and how much fun it is to be here at the end of the world. There's Anna has a an obnoxious ex who similarly just has this big number about how great it is to be in the zombie apocalypse. If you're the kind of person who like loves violence and loves to do whatever you damn well feel without any oversight. It's big and expressive. It's sloppy and silly and shallow in the exact same way Glee was. Like this really does feel like a, a recast Christmas special of Glee with zombies thrown in. Um, but I had a lot of fun with it.
1: I had a little bit of fun with it. I, I, <laughs> I guess my I guess my problem was that it, it felt a bit too much like a piece of Shaun of the Dead fan art and not its own thing. I mean, in fact, in fact, it flat out steals my favorite visual joke from. John of the Dead, where the Simon Pegg character is going to the convenience store post zombie outbreak, and and he slips a little bit getting a, getting his drink, and you know that he's slipping on blood. And it's off screen. They that that joke is repeated here with like a body, like somebody's on a jog and they trip over a body that you know is a body off that he's not noticing. And I just like mm. a little too much, a little too close uh, there. But I think the I think the first half is a lot of is a lot of fun. The music is good. And it kind of runs out of gas in the last third.
0: Me. How do you feel about your precious violence?
1: Uh, there's, there could be more of it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Some of it, but like that is a complaint. See, be, people so often have about zombie movies. Not it's enough like, violence, but
1: I, I did appreciate in both it and Shaun of the Dead that the zombies are classic slow movers. <laughs> so uh, you gotta like that. Not very bright that so, is true if, so sorry, if, i'm into that
0: if george romero had like mainlined a whole bunch of glee and then decided to make a scene a oh musical in scotland during christmas maybe this is what it would look like maybe so all mm. right well anna and the apocalypse scott you didn't love this movie what do you love right now <laughs> okay
1: we've been seeing so many great documentaries all year round, and and uh, I f- saw yet another one uh, called The Last Race, oh, uh, uh, nice. which is being which is out there by Magnolia Pictures. You can watch it. It's it's rolling out in the theaters, but it's also available on demand currently. The way I would describe it is that it's like a mix of early Errol Morris, like Gates of Heaven and Vernon Florida. It's re- it's you know reminiscent of uh, the Bruce Brown movies like The Endless Summer, and also of this particular period of fiction documentary hybrids with a a very elevated visual style the milieu that's being drawn out here is uh, Long Island uh, which is where auto racing was born but uh, this racetrack called Riverhead Raceway is really the last Long Island racetrack and, and it's very beaten down and it's it's sitting here in the middle of a community that is in flux. You know, I mean, auto auto racing in this area is not not really a big thing. You know, I mean, these cars are gas guzzlers. It's just like the mo- the world has moved on. Beyond what happens at at Riverhead Raceway, and so so um, it gives us this, this this sense of these characters who who occupy this sort of throwback world and this this world of of a very very strange tradition, a very macho masculine culture. A lot of there's a lot of really hot tempers uh, at work here with people uh trading uh paint and and getting angry at each other but there's also a a great deal of of affection and love for this world as well and for the people who run the raceway but the style of it is very elevated you know aesthetically a lot of the the race um scenes are, are are often scored to mozart's requiem you know it's got like this very powerful visual style and it packs all of this into an hour and 15 minutes so it's it's not going to take a whole lot of your time anyway but if you like unconventional um, impressionistic uh, and quirky eccentric documentaries um, you know this is the last race of the movie for you and you really don't have to be somebody who's into stock car racing or that history at all I certainly am not and I got a lot out of it so the last race Genevieve
3: all right well uh you know we all have our cinematic catnip you know for scott it's his beloved violence and for me it's keira knightley in period costumes (laughs) i will always go see a movie featuring keira knightley in period costumes and that movie this year is a movie called colette directed by wash westmoreland who did uh still alice the julianne moore movie from a few years ago Mm -hmm. that Everyone really loved. Um, He co-wrote it with his late husband, Richard Glatzer and Rebecca Linkerwitz. This is a biopic of the French novelist Colette, probably best known for writing Gigi and played here by Knightley. And like good biopics, it uh, focuses on one specific period of her life, the time of her first marriage to, I'm going to butcher this name, I'm sorry, Henry Gautier Villars, I don't know, I don't speak French, but also known as Willie, for whom she ghostwrote her first four novels, the loosely autobiographical Claudine books. Uh, So the movie basically charts Colette's discovery of herself, her talent, and her sexuality within the context of her marriage to Willie, played by Dominic West, who was a well-known libertine in the Paris salon scene of the late 19th and early 20th century. What I find particularly interesting about this film is how it approaches and portrays the libertine philosophy in regards to the different genders and sexual orientations, and how it operates within a marriage with such an extreme power differential. Uh, But lest that sound too fraught, it's actually a real pleasure to watch Colette evolve under and eventually outgrow Willie in this film. Uh, And the narrative really kicks into another gear when it brings in Colette's relationship with Missy de Mornay, whom Colette had a years long creative and romantic partnership in whom the film characterizes as what we today would probably call a transgender man. Uh, But the focus throughout the film remains on Colette and Knightley is really a joy to watch in this role and not just because she can wear the hell out of, you know, 19th century period costumes, uh, though that's definitely worth the price of admission in my uh, opinion. (laughs) But, um, you know, Colette is a figure I was only sort of vaguely aware of before this film and I can't really speak to its biographical accuracy, but as a film narrative, I found it really delightful and sort of subversive and unusual and set during a really interesting time period. And it's just really a delight on both the narrative and visual level. Um, I think it's still in a handful of theaters, and you can purchase it digitally at the moment, but I imagine it'll be rentable in the next couple of months. So keep an eye out for Colette.
1: How much Gigi's in it?
3: None. This is pre-Gigi. Oh, pre-Gigi. Yeah, it's all about the Claudine books. Thank you. N- none of you saw this yet? Not Fred yet. Not? No,
2: yeah. it's my screener pile. I definitely want to. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, um,
0: Yeah, it is the season to have a humongous, humongous pile of yeah, films yeah, that we th- all want to see. There
3: are definitely a lot of films I probably should have watched before Colette, <laughs> but I just, I was like, oh, this is that movie where Kieran Knightley wears period costumes and it's under two hours. I'm
0: going to watch this one, Yeah, and I'm glad I did. <laughs> Sometimes when you're looking at a big pile of cinematic vegetables and a little pinch of cinematic catnip, you're going to go for the catnip. There's There's no harm Please. in that.
2: That, that metaphor doesn't work, Tasha.
3: <laughs> it's a sharpened bullet of a metaphor. It <laughs> is a sharpened
0: bullet of a metaphor. <laughs> and that's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next pairing will come out late December, early January. We're still working out the dates based on the holidays. Genevieve, what is coming up next whenever we do get around to it? In 2018, we lost both creators
3: of Spider-Man, writer Stan Lee and artist Steve Ditko. When they first collaborated to make a neurotic, bullied teenager into a superhero after a chance encounter with a radioactive spider, neither could have possibly imagined the many different shapes their creation would take after becoming a ubiquitous pop culture icon. So in celebration of that legacy, we'll be looking at two of the many big screen incarnations of Spider-Man and exploring how they relate not only to each other, but also to their comic book origins and the explosion of superhero films that's come to dominate 21st century blockbusters. First up, we'll be discussing Sam Raimi's 2004 film Spider-Man 2, a sequel to Raimi's own Spider-Man, and long praised as one of the richest depictions of Peter Parker in his cast of supporting characters. From there, we'll follow Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse for the new animated film that features a multiverse of Spider-Men, and women, and pigs, and robots, and serves as a fascinating distillation of the history and legacy of Lee and Ditko's creation.
0: In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Mean Girls, The Favorite whether the favorite poisoning sequence really reminds you a lot of Phantom Thread (laughs) and (laughs) anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Scott.
1: Uh, Well, you can find me on Twitter at Scott underscore... Tobias, and you can find my work in uh, New York Times, Washington Post, NPR. I just had my first piece run on Polygon, which is part of your Vox family, I think. I did did something on uh, the film Upstream Color, so you can check that out there. And then I'm also the editor-in-chief of Oscilloscopes Musings blog, Keith.
2: You can find me on Twitter at kphips3000. I'm kind of all over the place these days. I've written for Polygon. Scott,
1: welcome. So are you welcoming me to the Polygon family? Sure,
2: I've written for The Verge. I've written for The Ringer. I write for Vulture quite a bit. I write for Slate on a pretty regular basis. I'm just I'm just writing fool. Uh, Genevieve, how about you?
3: Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Genevieve Koski, and I am the deputy TV editor at Vulture. Tasha. You
0: You can find my writing on film at theverge.com, where I am also the film and TV editor. You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. If you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and helps us keep making Fetch happen. We're not going to make Fetch happen, <laughs> Tasha. Fine. <laughs> Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance in producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the film spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time.